This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Different views make great conversation. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. And we're back. This is Donald Jeffries. Filling in tonight for Richard Serrett on The Conspiracy Show. John Barber, uh, we interrupted you again. That's probably going to happen a lot. More commercials maybe than you're used to. So so uh, go ahead and finish what you were saying. Okay, I'll get to the end quickly because I didn't know the time would be flying this fast to get ready to get, get it over. Uh, and we had, so I had, they had that show, and the, uh, the head writer was Hal Cantor, who was also the head writer of the Academy Awards for 25 years, became a huge fan of mine, helped me get my first television break. But in any event, uh, Neil Simon was there and a dozen other the great writers, and we were totally in awe, absolutely totally in awe. And also there was Groucho Marx. And Groucho Marx, of course, was one of my childhood heroes. Every comic, Abbott and Costello, Laurel and Hardy, I haunted movie theaters, so they were all my heroes. Anyway, Hal Cantor wrote what I thought was a very funny opening for because Groucher was going to be the MC of the show. And uh, so anyway, <laughs> Groucher said, Hal, what's my opening? And so Hal starts to hum, thanks for the memory. Da-da-da-da-da-dum, da-da-da-da-da-dum. <laughs> And then your first line, and we hear that music, Groucho, for a while. Then the curtain opens and nobody's there and you walk out and you say, isn't it great to hear that music and not have that guy show up? Which is a very (laughs) funny line. And Groucho Mark said, I'm not doing that. And I was nobody. Nobody. And I said, Mr. Marx, why not? And then he looked at me like I was a nobody. And I said, that's funny. He said, I'm not putting down Bob Hope. So what else have you got, Hal? So Hal said, well, I would like, here's your next line. I wanted to do some jokes about Lou Wasserman, the head of Universal and MCA. But I hate to do jokes about dogs when they're up. said, I'm not doing that. So Hal says, well, what are you going to do for God's sake? He said, well, I'm going to have six beautiful girls carrying me out the way I've done for 40 years. And, and, and Hal said, well, that's old hat. And Groucho said, it's old hat because it works. And that's what I'm going to do. And he did it. And it was so God awful corny, quite honestly. And it bombed. (laughs) The two hits of the show were Neil Simon's skit with Walter Matthau, who on stage was the most charismatic actor I ever saw. 
On screen, it was Cary Grant, but on stage it was. And then the other hit was the skit that we did about my uh, unemployed carpenter. So we had <laughs> agents looking all over for us, and we signed with an agent. And as soon as we signed with an agent, I quit. I told Waddy, I can't do this anymore. And then I felt bad because the very next day, his wife ran off with the choir master from Bel Air. <laughs> but folks, the, the the book is filled with it. And what what is what is really fascinating reading your book, having the and then having the honor of writing the foreword to it, which I'm still amazed by. But I just I, I was astounded at your career because it is so many near. You had so many near misses. You were so close. You had a talk show for a week, or you know, you're the original show co co host of the Gong Gong Show. So many things working with the young. Bryant Gumbel, uh, you know, going up up against uh, George Carlin and stand up. You had so many uh, interactions with people that uh, became so big, and and then you finally had, had tell us how you finally get real people, which ends up being the number one show on television. And it all happened by accident. But the last word about Whitey, because I felt so bad because here, you know, we got an agent, and I'm deserting him. I just can't do it anymore. He found a fellow, he's a one-armed writer, his name was Lloyd Turner. And guess what they ended up writing for five years? Mm, I don't know. Mark, Mark and Mindy with Robin Williams. Oh, okay. <laughs> and he he died rich 10 years ago in Palm Springs where he retired. Every weekend he played golf and he played his bass. He died, died, died 10 years ago. But you know, one thing that I see that when I look around at the news now and how laughable it is, do you know that in Poland they're now doing American justice jokes? I mean, it, <laughs> yeah. we are the laughing stock of the world, made more of a laughing stock by this nonsense of uh, Jeffrey Epstein. Yeah. And you know what? Everything since 1963 about our government and media has become absolutely and totally laughable. And the wonderful thing about it to me, thank God that I decided long, long ago to become a comedy writer and a comic because I got to look at these whores and turn it into funny fertilizer, which I succeeded in doing. But I see now that Americans are just busting out all over the place, laughing at the charade of the Epstein suicide. Yeah, everybody uh, sounds like a conspiracy theorist now. I mean, nobody's buying it. No, absolutely no one. But, you know, uh, the first thing that I got, you remember One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Ass, a great movie with Jack Nicholson, <laughs> I think sure. it was the first movie that Michael Douglas produced. Remember it? Yeah, great movie. Yeah. Do you remember the name of the nurse? Nurse Ratched. That's it. <laughs> See, that's <laughs> why I love talking to you. You can remember that. Nurse Ratched. Okay. The first thing I got uh, in, uh, sent to me by messenger, I have like four or 5,000 friends, and a lot of them are very, very funny. This guy made a picture of Nurse Ratchet and inserted Hillary Clinton's face in it. And said, this, this was Epstein's nurse. 
brought him the pills, brought him the rope. And then, and then somebody else cobbled together, I guess they do it in what they call Photoshop. Mm-hmm. It was a picture I of saw that, yeah. and Hillary and Bill Clinton sitting side by side on the couch. And they're laughing their heads off for the rest of the song. <laughs> they hear they hear that Epstein is dead. So I captioned it underneath. I just love doing this, taking pictures and putting captions. And I have Hillary saying, Oh God, that Epstein. He was hung. <laughs> and, then Bill, and then Bill says, Do you mean by a rope? <laughs> then, yeah. then, then, some guy in New York said he was shocked by Epstein's passing. He was in another car. <laughs> well, there was also there were also some uh, memes out there with uh, with Juan Juan Epstein from Welcome Back, Cotter. They, they had a little play on that too. <laughs> Mueller's investigation will prove Epstein was suicided by the Russians. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah. There's, well, you know, there's a the Joe Scarborough. That's he joked about that. That's our that's our American journalist. That's that's the kind of investigating they do. He basically inferred that it was the Russians doing it. So yeah, and uh, somebody wrote me and said, "Hold it a second. Uh, why why didn't they give him bail?" And <laughs> I said, I answered back and posted it. The reason Epstein was denied bail was because the authorities were afraid he'd skip the country. And not have the opportunity to hang himself. That's right. <laughs> yeah, well, it certainly it certainly has kept people busy on social media talking about it. I, I I love it, you know, because it is so obvious. It's so obvious. A month ago, Epstein is on suicide watch. He attempts it, and they revive him. And now that they're convinced he'll kill himself, they cancel the watch. <laughs> and what people aren't informed of is what the suicide watch means to the federal authority. There's there's, there's that music again, John. We're at, we're at the top of the hour. Another commercial. Uh, well, well, we have plenty to talk about still. We'll, we'll try to fill as much time as we can. We'll be right back after these words with more John Barber. Live from Toronto, Canada, Earth, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. On Zoomer Radio. And welcome back to The Conspiracy Show. This is Donald Jeffries, guest hosting tonight. Very uh, privileged and honored to do this for the great Richard Seard. He'll be back with you next week. And uh, we're talking to John Barber, show business legend, uh, protege or whatever you want to call the Jim Garrison and Boswell to Jim Garrison. We're going to get into that in a minute. Uh, he is uh, the author of a fantastic new book just released a couple months ago, Your Mother's Not a Virgin, The Bumpy Life and Times of the Canadian Dropout Who Changed the Face of American TV uh, with a foreword by yours truly. Very honored again to do that. And uh, it's just a fantastic read for any of you out there. Please read it. It's, you're, you will not be disappointed. It's, it's very long. But uh, it, it moves very fast. 
kind of like watching Oliver Stone's JFK. It, it, you know, it, it goes by fast. <laughs> you'll you'll be uh, you'll be so engrossed in it that you won't uh, even be bothered by the length, and you'll you'll actually want more. But John, let's talk a little bit about. First, let's talk a little bit of how, how you came after all the kind of these uh, ups and downs in show business. Uh, you know, as you mentioned, periods of when you're out of work, trying to figure out which way to go. Stand-up comedian, uh, uh, prospective hot talk show host, a film critic, where you were one of the first film critics, maybe the first one on on, on television with the, the local uh, Los Angeles station, working with Tom Snyder for years. Uh, doing that kind of stuff, and then you come to Real People. You hit it big for a few years there, where it's number one show in television. You said it happened accidentally, so talk because I think the audience probably maybe recognizes you mostly from Real People. So talk a little bit about Real People, uh, maybe give an inside story or two on on that. Well, I will, but you know what was really touching to me a little while ago, and I'm astonished by it because it was only one word uh, i mean I'm, and also i was really touched and moved and thank you so much not only for the introduction to the book but for you know plugging the book but it was during the break when they mentioned that the show comes from toronto i mean it had a real strong emotional impact on me because of course that's where i was born in the salvation army charity ward and i was out on the streets by the time i was 6 or 7 years of age, and I left there when I was 17 to come to the United States to be a professional gambler. And then you're mentioning my book, and right now my dream is I'm three or three and a half weeks away from returning to Canada. I expect to be in Vancouver for three or four days doing three, two or three uh, very popular radio shows, A couple, all of them national radio shows and doing a bunch of book signings then i'm gonna uh, rent uh, rent a car and then i'm gonna drive around uh to edmonton winnipeg and a few places like that to do book signings go back to vancouver and return to toronto as a prodigal son i hope and stay there a week and uh richard has asked me to come into the studio to do the show with him in the studio. So I'm really looking forward to that, but I don't know why the word Toronto hit me so hard. Uh, you know, isn't that funny? That's weird. <laughs> anyway, what, what is it you would like me to talk, talk about or start or whatever? Well, I, I think the, I think the, because most people I think know you from, certainly that's where I knew you from was real people. So it, it, this is kind of, that was the highlight of your show business career. You, you become the host and uh, the creator and one of the hosts of, of a show that was number one on television for three years. So what was that like finally hitting it? Finally, you, you talked about, you know, making a lot more money, uh, being, I think you described it as being the only thing you really miss about being a celebrity like that is getting a good seat in restaurants, things like that. What was yeah. it like to finally be on top for, for, for a few years there? Well, I'll tell you how the show came about, and it came about quite by accident. I was the a film critic, as you mentioned, on the 6 o'clock news with Tom Snyder, and I sat right next to the teletype machines that brought in the stories, and often a story would come over uh, 
the teletype machine. And the teletype machine was called Reliable Sources. And they come from the AP wire services and Reuters and stuff like that. And a lot of their stories said, not for broadcast. And one of the ones was a story about this beautiful, beautiful, tall brunette who was a stripper. And uh, she said that God gave her this magnificent body. And women have magnificent bodies to become sex objects to men so that uh, God's creatures can be reproduced. She said she was going to strip for God and she was going to tithe her church. That's exactly what she did. So I gathered a bunch of these stories. Another one was a fellow named Roy Reek, who was, he's in the Guinness Book of Records as the unluckiest man in the world. And when you catalog his disasters, you begin to laugh and laugh and laugh because you can't believe it's like a Sholem Aleichem story. It gets worse and worse. And the only thing you can do is, is laugh. And he used to watch the six o'clock news to see if people had it tougher than him. So anyway, I gathered these and one day I get a call from Ray Stark. Ray Stark is the most successful producer in Hollywood. So I meet with him. He invites me to lunch. He's got his own private dining room with waiters and everything like that. And we get into a conversation about Ben Hecht. Ben Hecht was, uh, he wrote the best book about anybody in show business until I wrote mine. His book is called A Child (laughs) of the Century. Ben Hecht was the highest paid screenwriter in America he wrote Gone with the Wind in 12 Days and never read the book. He invented gangster movies with Scarface, and he wrote Front Page with Charles MacArthur, and he became the first paid propagandist for the non-existent state of Israel. He's the first person to whom I ever wrote a fan letter. Now, you think I'm not going to talk about real people, but I am because it all comes <laughs> together. I wrote the only fan letter I ever wrote in my uh, life, Jeffrey, but the only one. And the first sentence was, Mr. Hecht, I am so dreadfully sorry I accidentally picked up your book. Because (laughs) barring anything found new by uh, Mark Twain, you've totally destroyed everything I will read in the future. (laughs) Two weeks later, I got a handwritten letter from him he said he was going to the Laguna Playhouse to put on a one-act play called Winklebird, and when I could come down for a few days and be his assistant. And I went down, and, and I, met, I, I, I met him. So that's why I tell you that story. But in any event, I have always figured, being around actors so long, because when I was a male boy at Paramount, that's all I saw. And most of them are inarticulate boobs, unless they have a writer... And Robert De Niro proved that a year ago at the Tony Awards when he told the president to go F himself. I mean, not only was I appalled by what it is that he said, for God's sake, even though I'm not a fan of Trump's, is that De Niro, by doing that, destroyed every movie that he ever made that I loved. Because I can't watch him in The Godfather now without knowing what an inarticulate idiot he is. And I met him when he couldn't speak, but I didn't know that he couldn't speak. He just never spoke when I was at parties or some place with him. So in any event, being at the news and having access to these stories, I put them together. 
And and Ray Stark said, would you write a movie? And I said, no. He said, well, if you're going to write a movie, what would you write about? I said, well, you know, Americans don't write about people. Nobody seems to have a job, for God's sake. We write about things and events. I said, if I were writing a script, I'd write a love story that starts one New Year's Eve and ends the next New Year's Eve. But through a lot of the scenes, I would show you television in the background. It would either be a game show or it'd be the news, but it, it would show our culture. And these people would both have jobs. Well, something like that ended up in Warren Beatty's shampoo. But he offered me $50,000. And I turned it down as a conflict of interest. And I said, he said, what do you want to do? I said, I want to do a show about real people. I showed him the stories and he howled. So he called his agent and said, I want to help John. And then I thought, oh, my God, I'll get all the help in the world. And the agent called me about a week later and said, no, he's in movies. We're not going to have him do this. So I couldn't, nothing happened. Anyway, uh, I had asked for a $50 raise as a critic because I was the number one critic in the country. I was only getting $350 a week. I was on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And I was responsible for 10% of all their viewership. And they wouldn't give me a $50 raise, so I didn't want to do it, but I quit. But before I quit, they sent me back to the program director, got a job as the general manager of the ABC station in Chicago. So I went back, and I had to fill in for a guy that left there to come to L.A. And so I filled in, and on like the fifth day, a group of lawyers, because I had Nixon's speechwriter on, and we spent the whole hour talking about the assassination of John Kennedy because his boss, Nixon, was always referring to that Cuba thing when it was actually a code name for Dallas. Well, that, that's so, a perfect place to say it because this, this is what fascinates me about you is that you combine, you know, I love show business and I'm, I'm writing a book about show business now about the old days. I mean, I, I'm fascinated by that. And of course, the JFK assassination is kind of my baby. You know, it's where I, I got started back in the 70s with Mark Lane. So how how did you, and I, I have to think, I think we've talked about this before, that this kind of made, didn't exactly make you popular in Hollywood when you started getting into the JFK assassination. How did you gravitate towards that? And, you know, of course, you ended up talking to Jim Garrison and interviewing him, but how did you go from the world of stand-up comedy and all this entertainment to suddenly getting into more serious subjects, starting with the assassination of John F. Kennedy? First, let me finish the real people story, and then I'll get to okay. that. Okay. If we don't have too many musical in, in, uh, interruptions. A group of lawyers <laughs> in Chicago took out an ad in the Tribune telling ABC to keep me because it was the most intelligent conversation they'd ever heard. And Phil, Phil Amara was uh, uh, the general manager. So I, I said to Sarita, my wife, because my wife was there with me and with Christopher, which is a couple of years old. And I said, I would love to do this because this is Ben Town. This is where he got started as a columnist. And I loved it. And I did my reviews there in the new Sioux, and I became a star in a week. Even though I was at two weeks, I was a star at the end of the week. And Phil Mayer turned me down because he said his bosses thought I was too controversial just based on that interview with Nixon's speechwriter. Now, I'm not, a, I'm not into the assassination at the time. I don't care. It's just a great story. And, that, and I visioned myself as a storyteller. So 
what happens is that my son's god, uh, my son's godfather, who was now with Get Smart, is now producing the Barney Miller Show for Danny Arnold. And so Sarita, when she finds out that I'm not, they're not going to hire me permanently. So they replaced me with Charlie Rose, who was so bad after two weeks we get rid of him, and they bring in this black girl from Cincinnati, Oprah Winfrey. Now, she does very well, and she asked ABC to syndicate her, but ABC said, no, nobody would be interested in buying this show. So two guys named the King Brothers, who were the only show they had was our gang, and they were just barely getting by. So they stepped in to syndicate Oprah's show, and all three of them became billionaires. In any event, Sarita goes back, and she meets with Danny Arnold, the co-creator of Barney Miller. And Sarita says, my husband, and, and Chris Hayward, who's the, my godfather, my son's godfather, say, John has this great idea about real people. And you should let him do a show about real people. So he gives me $1,000 a week for 13 weeks to create the pilot. My co-host is going to be Richard Pryor. <laughs> and my consumer advocate is going to be Jackie Mason. And so when I go, I had, Danny sets up a meeting with a guy named Lou Ehrlich. I'm going to put this on pause a second because this is very important. You know the name Freddie Silverman? Of course. Okay, the first time I met Freddie Silverman, Jerry Weintraub was my uh, first manager. Jerry Weintraub ended up touring with Elvis and Sinatra and managing uh, John Denver and a lot of people. I was one of his first clients. He takes me in to meet uh, Silverman when Silverman's at CBS. And in front, and he's younger than me. And he said in front of a bunch of people, you're never going to make it in television. You're too soft. This is the same Freddie Silverman that canceled Hollywood Squares off of CBS. And it ended up at NBC, where it became a major hit. I must tell you, if one creative thought was Niagara Falls, Freddie Silverman would die of thirst. Anyway, he <laughs> ends up at a he ends up at ABC, and he locks out with a show called Roots, and he, it's the biggest show ever in the history of television. And he become and NBC is bombing. So what they do is they raid NBC and they hire Freddie Silverman. You may not remember this, but it was huge news. He was ordered by the courts because of the contract to have no contact with any network or anybody in show business for a year until he became the president of NBC. And guess where he lived with that, uh, for that year? He lived in Danny Arnold's house in Hawaii. Now, I'll tell you why I bring this up. Anyway, Danny sets up an appointment with me with a guy named Lou Ehrlich. And, and, and I've already done the five scripts. And he said, what are these scripts? You just have introductions to a, a film. Where's the film? And I said, well, I'm going to go out and shoot it. And he said, well, this is a bunch of crap. And who's going to be your co-host? And I said, Richard Pryor. At the time, Richard Pryor was in jail in Los Angeles. He had done a special for NBC, and Standards and Practices edited out one of his controversial pieces, and Richard went in and punched his face out and was arrested. Mm -hmm. 
and then the IRS was waiting for him for income tax evasion. But he was a friend, and he was funny, and he was filling art houses since he changed his act and became Richard Pryor and started smoking dope, and you're just shit. And I said to him, hold it. I won five Emmys and a golden mic. I wouldn't call that shit, Mr. Ehrlich. He said, you're shit. Danny Arnold is king. Anyway, I go back to the office, and Danny Arnold's laughing because Lou Ehrlich called and told him what a piece of crap I was. And so Danny Arnold decides that he's going to cast it. And I said, it's going to be a bob. And I went out and shot all the pieces. The audience loved the pieces and hated the people that Danny Arnold had selected to host the show. So it died. But in the meantime, every time I came in and I showed him the stripper for God and I showed him the unluckiest man in the world, he was on the phone to Freddie Weintraub of Fred, Freddie Silverman in Hawaii. Okay, so put that in your memory bank. So what happens? ABC turns it down. I take it to four or five of the most successful critic of uh, the producers in the business, and they turn it down, and, and and I quit the business. I quit. I was forty six years of age, and I remember the day I was standing. I had a small, small bungalow in Toluca Lake, and I'm standing on the corner next to the golf course. And I'm saying, you know what? I'm getting, I can't do this. I'm not going to succeed as a producer. I'm not going to succeed as a stand-up. I'm giving it up. And I'm going to become, my son was 10 years of age at the time. I'm going to become the father to my son, the father that I never had. My father deserted us when I was six years of age. And I, in the book, I tell the story of how I tracked them down in England. But in any event, I give it up. And you want to know something, Jeffrey? 46 yes, years of age. It was the only happy day of my life, except for the day I married Sarita and the day my son was born. This was the third half. It was the only day I had ever felt at peace. Now, i got to put that on hold a second. While I'm a critic at, N- at NBC... A movie comes out called uh, The Great Gatsby. Yes. You, know, you remember the film? Oh, sure. Of course. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Anyway, um, I'm trying to remember the guy who was the head of Paramount Studios, very famous homosexual who married some very wealthy lady. I can't think of his name offhand. <laughs> You wouldn't know it if I mentioned mentioned the name. In any well, event, break, I repeat, break's coming up again, John. Sorry, to, sorry to do it to you. Let's we have to catch it on the other side. We'll be right back after okay. these messages with okay. Barber.
Live from Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. And welcome to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. I am not Richard Serrett. This is Donald Jeffries, your guest host. Um, I am a, you may recognize me. I'm an author of books like Hidden History, Survival of the Richest, and my brand new book, Crimes and Cover-Ups in American Politics, 1776 to 1963. Uh, later on, a little bit later on, we're going to have a television pioneer, the creator of the hit show Real People, John Barber, who's also a noted JFK assassination researcher. We'll be talking a little bit about show business, as well as the Kennedy assassination, and maybe a little politics. But first, last month, uh, this conspiracy show began a regular new feature. The second Sunday of every month, we're joined by David John Oates, the discoverer of reverse speech. David was the first person to ever document speech reversals in human speech in 1983, and has worked extensively since then on research and development, as well as maintaining a therapeutic and consulting practice. He's had an active career spanning 24 years furthering the field of reverse speech as his full-time occupation. He's developed new theories and designed therapeutic and training techniques. David is the co-host of Reverse Speech Radio. David, welcome. I uh, know you explained reverse speech to our listeners last month, but I'm new to this program, and I'm also kind of new to this. So just take a couple of moments and explain what reverse speech is, how it works, and what it reveals. Sure. Let Let me do exactly that. Okay, so basically what I'm proposing is a brand new theory of language. I'm claiming that language is twofold, forwards as well as backwards. And as the human brain is putting the sounds of speech together, it's doing it in such a way that we're saying two things at once, one forwards and one in reverse. And what I'm literally doing is recording speech and running it backwards. And when you run speech backwards, I mean, you may think it's, all, it's a whole lot of gibberish. And in many cases, it can be gibberish. But periodically, scattered throughout the, that gibberish can be heard very clear English phrases that are uh, generally related to the forwards and are grammatically correct. And um, I've been researching this for 35 years now. I started um, I started way back in '84 with uh, hearing about uh, those uh, rumours of satanic messages in rock and roll. Which yes, yes, yeah. And uh, so I started looking at that and playing my records backwards, and uh, and I accidentally stumbled across it in human speech a few months later, and uh, it was. And actually, what I, what I'll do is why don't I want to play you the very first example I found in human speech. Okay. Uh, it's very appropriate for this time. It's on Neil Armstrong taking his first steps on the moon. And we've just had the 50th anniversary, of course, of the moon landing. So here are his very first words. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. When we need to play it back, as we hear him say quite clearly, man will spacewalk. Do you hear that, sir? Yes, yes, I do. There we go. And, of course, as he steps on the moon, he's thinking man will continue to walk into space. We have begun our destiny in space. Man will spacewalk. It's a grand statement um, based on uh, a grand event. 
and that was the that was the very first reversal I found in speech uh, back in '87, and uh, that put me on a whole new journey. Uh, it's one thing to hear it in music; it's sort of an interesting little odd to you know. You play it for your friends when they come around, they go "Ooh ah," you know. But then to hear, to hear it in speech puts a whole different twist on it altogether. And uh, so I started researching human speech and uh, found it to be prolific. I mean, here's an example on Angelina Jolie. This shows what I call the complementary nature of reverse speech. One of the first things I noticed was that the reverse speech and the forced speech related to each other. They had this direct contextual relationship. So uh, here's an obvious one. I grew up kind of very, uh, very aware of my own emotions. Run this in reverse. Here, you tell me what she's saying. Listen, listen carefully. I am very aware. I am very aware. I am very aware. What do you hear? I'm very aware. Yeah, exactly right. I'm very aware. Yeah. So, she, so we have this direct contextual relationship. One thing forwards. I grew up very aware of my own emotions, and in reverse, we have this uh, direct contextual relationship and it was those relationships that made that convinced me um, back in the early days that uh, this was a uh, very real phenomena yeah, here we have um, yeah, here we have one with a thick accent this is a thick Australian accent if you can get this you're doing really really well <laughs> okay this is an Australian guy on TV <clears throat> And his accent thicker than mine because he's a native Australian. And uh, he's talking about how he found a whole extended family. So here's the forwards. And I was about 30, 35, and I found out that my father was alive. How did you find out? Um, it's just through word of mouth. Okay, now I'm going to run that section backwards, a little small section. Listen carefully, see if you can hear what he's saying. I am Vanilla Sister. I have an older sister. I have an older sister. What do you hear? I have an older sister? Yeah, exactly right. I have an older <laughs> sister. Exactly right. <laughs> and let me run it forwards and hear what he's saying next. Talking a different one. The same with... Uh, but I mean, what, what someone was said to you, something was said to you, was it? Yeah, well, I just talked to different ones about it because I was sort of trying to trace a sister. One of my sisters. So you found out that you had sisters and brothers. Yeah, I knew all along I, I had one sister. Mm. So he says it backwards first. That's what he's thinking, and then he starts talking about his sister. So, uh, so, uh, so it, it was those type of things that convinced me back in the early days that I was really onto something here, you know, um, and especially when people can hear the reversals without me telling them, and that's the real. Kicker, because um, you know one of the uh, one of the common criticisms about well, there's two common criticisms. The, the one, one of the ones is it's all paradolia. You know, uh, if you look in the clouds, you can see pictures. Uh, right, right. If you play taste backwards, you can hear voices. Um, uh, I think uh, whilst I understand that criticism and. Certainly, there are many sections of backwards tapes that don't have intelligent phrases, and so it is possible to imagine the gibberish. But amongst the gibberish, there's very clear phrases occur that can be heard by others quite clearly, um, and, and even even 
even Monash University in Melbourne, Australia, who have studied my work, uh, claimed and uh, stated in their report, we don't deny that Oates has found valid examples of backward messages. Um, so that being the case, the other criticism is it's coincidence. You play any section of speech backwards, you're bound to find a word here or there, or a sentence here or there. My argument to that is, look, these are occurring once every 15 or 20 seconds. They're in complete grammatically correct sentences. They usually relate directly to the forward dialogue. I mean, what are the odds of that occurring by pure chance? I mean, well, that, that, begs the, that begs the question, though. If, if you Do you ever have examples, for instance, and you're analyzing this speech, do you ever have examples where it is just gibberish? There is no significance to the backward speech. Oh, yeah. Yes, of course. Yes, yes. Yeah. Uh, there's some sections where you don't find anything. I mean, particularly when you do uh, media broadcasts. I mean, I can do a half an hour media tape and find nothing. <laughs> which is, which well, they're not saying much when they're speaking forward most of the time. <laughs> no, I know. It's very frustrating. But in normal conversation, no, you know, normal everyday conversation or when I'm doing my, you know, I, 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 I use this in my therapeutic practice when I work with the clients, you know, I'll find them once every 30 seconds or so, you know. So well, in, in keeping t in the tone of the, of the conspiracy show and kind of my conspiratorial mindset, you know, when I think oh. of this, I think of, you know, I Buried Paul, the Beatles backwards thing. And also, I think, wasn't it Led Zepp? Was it Stairway to Heaven that had some satanic sure. thing or something backwards? Do you? I'm sure you've probably analyzed that. Oh, yeah, of course I have. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Stairway to Heaven, a classic thing. Let me pull up some uh, music reversals for you uh, yeah. real quick. Uh, yeah, Stairway to Heaven is a classic one. Um, here is, uh, actually, let me uh, play a really freaky one if I can put my hands on it. The top of my, oh, I'm in the top of my head on the Night Stalker, Richard Richard Ramirez, um, mm -hmm. and uh, his song. Huh? Now that's strange. It's not where I wanted it to be. Uh, anyway, uh, we'll pull up some music reverse. Here we go. Okay, so for example, uh, here is uh, here is the Night Stalker, and this song was uh, Richard Ramirez. Listen to this song, the Night Stalker, over and over again. And it inspired a lot of his killing. So here we go. Here he sings backwards. Oh, listen to me. I'm from hell. Is that is that ACDC? Sorry, I'm sorry. Is that ACDC? Who is that? Yeah, that's ACDC okay, and okay, the okay. song and the song Night Night Stalker. And it was okay. this song that actually that sorry song song. Now, I interrupted Prowler. the backwards thing. Sorry about that. No, that's okay. Now, this, this this is the song Night Prowler, and okay. uh, it was this song that Rich Ramirez listened to over and over again. And this has got a rather creepy reversal on it too. Listen to this. And here we hear him backwards saying the Night Stalker. Hmm. Yeah, so there you go. A bit, a bit freaky. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah, look, I've, I've got, well, can, can your conspiratorial 
show, boy, boy, I can I can go into the JFK assassination and nine one one. Oh yeah, I've done them all. I've done them all. <laughs> uh, yeah. that will be for future shows, folks. Well, yeah, you, apparently you're going to be on every month. I mean, I I won't get to to host it, uh, but every so often. But uh, I and again, I just I just remember as uh, the I buried Paul. And that what what is it that the that Led Zeppelin the Stairway to Heaven? What what is it that they say backward? It's something about Satan, right? What is the yeah, yeah, it's, it's my sweet Satan, the one okay. little car would make me sad. His power is fake. And let me see if I can pull my hands up on that real quick. Uh, music um, stairway. Here we go. So here is the floors of that famous section. <laughs> That's the fours, and backward this my sweet Satan, the one whose little path would make me sad, whose power is fake. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's yeah, it's maybe the music is a little less clear than the than the just la- uh, speech, but yeah, uh, I, I, I could hear. I think you can hear that pretty clearly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's pretty. Yeah, well, it was that song that really got the whole thing started. Yeah, yeah. Top forty of Batman songs. It was that one by Stairway to Heaven. Yeah, yeah. And of course, it didn't take much of a leap because everybody knew that uh, Jimmy Page and. Um, God, I'm forgetting the, the the leads. Robert Plant were both, Robert I think, Plant, uh, d- yeah. disciples of uh, Aleister Crowley and were into that kind yeah, of satanic right. stuff. Yeah, exactly right. So it's not surprising to hear right. that type of thing on no. the music backwards, you know. Right. You'd expect and, to. Yeah. But then, so 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 that's how so that's how I heard about it. You know, Stairway to Heaven and uh, and uh, what's the other one? Queen. Another one bites the dust. It's fun to smoke marijuana. So <laughs> So I started looking at all of those, but then I found reversals, backward messages of music that weren't satanic, like 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 this one here. It was down in Louisiana, just about a mile from Texarkana, in their mold, Creedence Clearwater Revival, right. and there he says, I believe in my cool woman. Wow, that was really that was very clear. Yeah, so I'm scratching my head. I mean, this is me back in '84, you know. And I'm scratching <laughs> my head. And I'm going, "What the dickens is all this stuff?" Yeah. And I was convinced it was there. I mean, I'm a ham radio operator, so I'm used to audio. You know, I've been listening to ham radio signals for four years. You know, and my ears are pretty sharp, and <laughs> and I'm going. This is really weird. And uh, so I, I really, over six months, I played all my music collection backwards and found hundreds and hundreds of these things that 
I mean, I would say only less than 5% of them were what I could call satanic. And it's a shame that they're the ones that got all the publicity back in the early days because there's a whole whole lot that weren't, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, But what the music... But then when I found on a speech on Neil Armstrong walking on the moon, then, uh, of course, we, we, that's a whole other story. Did we go to the moon or not? I could do a whole show on that one, but that's another story together. <laughs> right. uh, so, but then when I found it on Neil Armstrong, I'm going, well, Dickens, this is occurring in speech as well. What on earth is it, you know? And then I found my second one, I found about 10 minutes after Neil Armstrong, and this is uh, JFK's assassination. Just a moment, please. Something has happened in the motorcade route. Stand by, please. Parkland Hospital, there has been a shooting. Parkland Hospital has been advised to stand by for a severe gunshot wound. The president's car is now going past me. The limousine is now traveling at a very high rate of speed. And here I hear him say he shot bad. Hold it. Try and look up. Wow. I mean, I, I'm, for someone like me who has researched the Kennedy assassination, I'm very familiar with that long litany that that recording is played. And I don't know if you know the story behind that, but that recording actually wasn't live. Supposedly the, the uh, radio guy recorded it later at a, at a later date or something, but it certainly sounds well, yes, like someone, someone, someone told me that you know, a while ago. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, either way. You know, yeah, that's that's amazing. I know, and that's what I'm saying. I'm saying. Uh, well, do you think? Do you think the individuals that are doing this? I mean, are, I mean, I don't know. Is, is there an ability where they consciously are able to put put, put to put that? Or? No, it's not conscious. It's unconscious. I mean, the musicians were de- denying they did it, and they were quite right. They they weren't doing it. It was another. It was the first sign of this dual communication process that all of us are speaking backwards. It's another function of language, and um, and what we're hearing in music was the first sign of this. So um, and uh, and and of course, see way to heaven, satanic. Yes, of course, see way to heaven. They're into they're into the occult, ACDC. Right. negative messages they're also into the occult you know and so so it's not surprising if, if that makes sense so uh, um so then no they weren't doing it deliberately it is the unconscious mind speaking and cool. it's everywhere it's everywhere well that this is fascinating um you know, I, again, this is all new to me. Other than again, just hearing about the Beatles and Led Zeppelin and all that, but and you know, knowing something about the JFK assassination, even it's it's fascinating stuff. I'm not sure what it means, but uh, it's I mean, some of some of it is is clearer than I thought it would be. I thought, like you mentioned earlier, a lot of people think, well, you're just you know, you're hearing what you want to hear, but some of it is pretty clear. I know that's what I say. That's what I say to people all the time. Hey, don't you know this is. This is clear as some of this stuff is clearer than clearer than the forth, than the forwards at some time, you know. So, so look, yeah. So there you go. That's your first baptism of reverse speech. <laughs> well, <laughs> you learn something new every day, and I want to make sure uh, that uh, you know you're, you'll obviously be back next month. I think at the same time, and uh, you want to? Is there anything you want to? Uh, I understand your show. Uh, your episodes drop every Thursday, uh, and you can go to. Yes, uh, I don't know what I'll be doing next month. I don't know. We may even touch on the JFK assassination. I've got some. Oh. <laughs> I did. You're, I 
did the four months of research into the JFK assassination, all the audio I could find. So, yeah, I got some interesting revelations. Well, you got you you you, you piqued my interest there because that's uh, that's my uh, main area of interest there. But uh, and, and and people that want more information, go to reversespeech dot ca or you can listen to subscribe radio. Anything else you want to promote there? Uh, no, that, uh, we've just released a new software which uh, called RS Video Pro, which is reversing vid- videos. And when you run videos backwards, the backward lip movements mouth out the reversals. Plus, you see all these amazing body language links. It's really freaky. So there we go. Go to our website to get that. ReverseSpeech.com. Well, that's, that's, that's I believe I've heard you on Rents. So you're on Jeff Rents quite often, aren't that's you? That's right. Yeah, I knew Jeff yeah. So I first heard you, and I remember thinking, "Wow, what, what is going on here?" Because uh, for those of us that uh, you know, just as a just a, as a kid, remembering you know when people started talking about their messages and, and, the, and the Beatles songs and Led Zeppelin and stuff, I said, you know, "Of course, that intrigues anyone." Because you're thinking, but I was under the impression, "Oh, they're doing it on purpose." You know, have you ever analyzed "Sympathy for the Devil" by the Rolling Stones? God only knows what that might say backwards. Uh, you know what? No, I, uh, actually, yes, I have actually. It says the Angered Wolf backwards oh, that's kind of boring <laughs> that's not what i would expect i would i would expect something re- really great for that because that's considered you know kind of a uh, an anthem for that kind of uh that's true. yeah it is isn't it yeah. satanic thought or whatever well it's it's you know it's it's fascinating to learn something new especially when you play that jfk assassination clip i said i've heard that many times and i've never never thought to hear it played backwards and uh that was that was some uh some very very interesting stuff. So, um, and I think I, I'm listening again. I'm I'm co-hosting this. I mean, I'm guest hosting this. This is the second time I've done it, so I'm used to music coming up. The music should be coming up. That's why I was giving you uh, that, putting out that information there because I wanted to get it out before we had to go to break. But uh, we're there's. There's the music there. Okay. All right. Thank you for having me on, sir. David Johnson, thank you so much for being here. And uh, you'll be back next month with Richard. And we'll be right back after this with JFK Assassination Researcher and the man who invented reality TV, John Barber. Take a look around. What do you really see? This is where you can tell all about it. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio. Okay, we're back. This is uh, Donald Jeffries, guest hosting for Richard Sirrett on The Conspiracy Show. We have a real special guest now, someone who is one of my favorite people in the cyber world and the real world. Uh, we've become very good friends, even though we're on other parts of the country, and I'm, I'm honored to have him as a friend. He's a television pioneer. He's a man who invented reality TV as the creator and host of the number one show on television for three years, Real People, stand-up comedian, film critic, JFK assassination uh, filmmaker who was, uh, made a great film, the uh, JFK assassination, the second assassination of JFK, the media and the second assassination of JFK, worked with Jim Garrison. Just delighted, to, always delighted to talk to John Barber. Welcome to the show, John. Oh, Donald, I'm just absolutely delighted that you're doing this, and I'm thrilled to be talking to you for a number of reasons. First of all, not only are you one of my favorite writers, you are one of my favorite Facebook ranters. And so <laughs> I love to read the stuff that you post. And also, you're old enough to remember some of the things that I have to talk about. So, so 
there you go. And it's appropriate that this is called the conspiracy show because maybe a lot of people who uh, doubted that we ever landed on the moon might have changed their minds with that for first reverse speech example that Mr. Rhodes played about Neil Armstrong saying one small step for uh, man and one giant leap for mankind, and in reverse it says man will walk in space. So mm-hmm. evidently that may be proof that he was indeed walking walking in space. He also said that reverse speech is subconscious. Well, it has to be self-conscious. I don't know that I necessarily believe in that because I think if something is strong in the self-conscious, it'll slip out as what they call a Freudian slip. But if if there is such a thing as reverse speech when somebody is speaking, let me ask you a question, and maybe you could make this an assignment uh, for him because he said he's going to be coming back to talk about the JFK assassination. Not anybody's reverse speech. But is there such a thing as reverse speech if you're writing a speech? And what I would like to hear him do, and maybe you can assign him to do this, or Richard can assign him to do this, is the first time that Lyndon Johnson spoke to the country was almost at midnight after the assassination of John Kennedy. And he took out a piece of paper He literally had to write down the grief that he felt (laughs) because it certainly didn't come from the heart. No. (laughs) I love that if you have Mr. Oates, go find that particular clip shot in Washington, D.C. at the airport where he's looking down at his nose (laughs) to talk about how bad he feels. You have him on and see 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 what... LBG, LBJ said in reverse, maybe, maybe uh, but I, I would doubt that you could have reverse speech if you're writing something. Only when you're ad-libbing or talking about I something. Would, anyway, I have had a very, very entertaining day. You might ask <laughs> me why. Yes, why? <laughs> well, I must tell you, when I first heard that Epstein committed suicide, I was reminded of the immortal words of Gomer Pyle, who said, surprise, surprise, surprise. <laughs> now, for, the, for, for those that don't know, on the audience, you... You one of the many things you did. You were a uh, a screenwriter, and you wrote some episodes of Gomer Pyle, correct? Well, I only wrote one episode. As a matter of fact, okay. it's funny. I I quit writing sitcoms after that. I I was working with a guy named Whitey Gordon Mitchell. Whitey Mitchell was uh, the country's third best pe- bass player. His brother, Red Mitchell, was Ella Fitzgerald's bass player. Mm-hmm. And Whitey uh, uh, was with the um, uh, Benny Goodman Orchestra. And he recorded a lot of albums with Eddie Fisher. Matter of fact, he told me a funny story about Eddie Fisher. Do you remember Eddie Fisher? Sure, sure. Oh, yeah. He had, oh, mine, Papa, and I'm walking behind sure. you. I mean, 
Not, Carrie, not Carrie Fisher's father. Yeah, sure. Yeah, well, he had a number of number one hits. Mm -hmm. And Whitey said that when they had recording sessions, he said Eddie had absolutely no sense of timing, which is <laughs> remarkable because he really had a beautiful voice and the records are lovely. They literally had to have a guy stand next to him and tap him on the shoulders when it was time to sing the next block. But in any event, uh, he called me when I was a struggling uh, comedian. My closest friend was a fellow named uh, Mort Lockman, who had been Bob Hope's head writer for 20 or 25 years. And I got a call from Whitey one day when I was out of work, and I was out of work a lot as a stand-up comic when I was starting. And he said that, uh, uh, you know, when he's 50, he doesn't want to be a bass player any longer. And I said, well, I don't blame me. I said, what do you want to do? He said, I want to be a comedy writer. I want to write. I want to write sitcoms. And so I, I met Mort Lockman, and Mort Lockman said, well, you know, it's easier if you have a partner. I have a partner. His name is Bill Larkin. Why don't you just call John Barber? He's out of work a lot. And he, <laughs> he may want to do something creative and financial while he's waiting for his next gig. And I said to him, uh, you know, I'd be happy to talk to you, but I'm not really interested in this. But if you want to come by the house, come by the house. I needed somebody to talk to and to try to send jokes on. Anyway, he showed up. He had two or three kids. His wife was quite religious and sang in the Bel Air Choir. And the reason I bring that up is there a point, there's a point about this a little later. Anyway, he said to me, um, what would you do if you were going to be a comedy writer? And I said, well, you know, you have to write everything on spec. Nobody's going to give you a job. And he said, well, if you were going to write something, what would you write? And I said, I would look at my favorite show. And then I would write a script about it on spec. And he said, what's your favorite show? And I said, well, my son's godfather, Chris Hayward, is one of the producers in Writer's Own Get Smart. And that's my favorite sh uh, show with Don Adams. <laughs> right. Do you believe? And so he said, would, he said, he said, would you write one with me? As a matter of fact, I was in one. Chris Hayward put me in one. Uh, I was the victim. I was in a crate and I was stuck in there with a gorilla and you can hear me screaming. That was oh, it's it's a great, great show. Missed it by that much. And yeah, he had so yeah, many great yeah. lines. It was, it was great. Yeah. Would you believe? Anyway, would you believe? <laughs> uh, he said, uh, would you write one with me? And I said, you know, I don't want to be a writer, you know? And I said, I'm not a writer. He said, but you write jokes. They're great jokes. I said, I write it because I have to. It's because I, you know, because I can't find stuff that's funny enough to steal or original enough to steal. I've only stolen two lines ever in my life. But I always attribute it to somebody, and the favorite person I steal from is Mark Twain. And I often say, as Mark Twain said, if voting made a difference, they wouldn't let us do it. You know, any, <laughs> anything like that. So he said, uh, please, I don't want to be a bass player when I'm 50. And I said, okay, <laughs> I, I will do it. He said, well, if you were going to do it, what would you write about? And I said, well, you know, the big villain in Get Smart is chaos. 
Remember chaos? Oh, yes, yes, yeah. And get smart. I said, yeah. well, the biggest thing in the country right now is green stamps. Now, I don't know if anybody <laughs> except you and I remember what green stamps are. Yeah. Green, tell the audience what green stamps were. Well, you you had uh, green stamps. Well, we were going to go for a break in a second, but you, you had we had green stamps in our area. We had yellow stamps too, and I mean, one one was at one grocery store, another was at another grocery store. But you could, if you you had to get a whole lot of them though. You got a little bit every time you went to purchase something, and then they would you could get a catalog, and if you got a certain, you know, if you got like a million or something, you could get a, a pretty decent gift. But they had like you know things you could win. We, I always kept. I don't know if we ever got anything. I, I don't know if we ever accumulated enough to get. I guess we did, but it wasn't anything. Anything really uh, to really write home about or anything, but uh, you know. So that's you know, who, I'm with, you know yeah. If, if you went shopping, you would be hold that, John. I hear I hear the music. I'm sorry. We we, we have to go to break, and we come back. Lots more great stories with the Hollywood veteran JFK guru John Barber. We'll be right back after these messages. You're listening to the Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. This is Donald Jeffries, your guest host. We're talking with John Barber. Before we get back to John Barber's story about green stamps, I, I, we should mention at this time that uh, John has a, a great new book out, uh, which is a, a memoir of his long, legendary career in show business, uh, his kind of uh, Dickensian life, David Copperfield type of uh, of a uh, rags to riches story and uh, his work with Jim Garrison in the JFK assassination is called your mother's not a virgin, the bumpy life and times of the Canadian dropout who changed the face of American TV. So everybody needs to go out and get that because you're, you're going to get a taste of some of the stories here uh, tonight, but uh, it's just, a, they're just an endless uh, array of these kinds of stories, fascinating anecdotes from John in the, uh, in the book. So anyhow, John, so I'm sorry that we're interrupted. You were, so we were talking about green stamps. So you want to finish that story? Yes, I'll finish that story. And again, thanks for the plug about the book. And I should tell your audience that you wrote an absolutely brilliant forward to the book. And you replaced Harlan Ellison. Harlan Ellison, as you know, along with Nabokov and Ray Bradbury, one of the greatest science fiction writers ever. Yes. And uh, I, he was on almost every show that I did. And he, uh, the last appearance he had on the internet radio show was my show. But a year ago, he had a stroke and he was hoping to live long enough to read the book because there are very funny stories about him in the book. And sadly, he did not because he said he would like to write the foreword. But I must tell you, nobody Nobody could have done it as well as you. So anyway, back to the green stamps thing. I said to Whitey, I said, Whitey, you know what? Uh, By the way, that's owned by the Rockefellers. The green stamps were were owned by the Rockefellers. And I said, you know, we could make a lot of uh, 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 hay and press. What we'll do is we'll write a script on spec about chaos 
counterfeiting green stamps to destroy the American economy and the rock sellers. <laughs> so that's what we did. And somehow or another, he got it to somebody at Desilu Productions, and it worked its way all the way up to Desi Arnaz. And we got a call to come in and meet with Desi Arnaz. And I was really thrilled because I absolutely loved, I love uh, Lucy. And in the book, there's an absolutely fantastic story. It's a late night dinner I had with George Goebel. And he tells us how Lucille Ball became accidentally the wealthiest, most powerful female in the entertainment business. But I won't get into that, but I was anxious to meet Desi because he's a guy that invented shooting a show with three cameras and an audience. And in any event, it was very disappointing because he wasn't this Babaloo guy we saw singing Babaloo and playing the bongo. <laughs> he looked like Orson Welles. <laughs> he was huge. He couldn't even tie his tie because he couldn't tie the top button of his shirt and he was sweating <laughs> profusely and he was obviously drunk. But anyway, we ended up, <laughs> Wayne and I, we did my, uh, the Tammy Grimes show, My Mother the Car, and Gomer Pyle. And I quit after the fourth script because the way we would work, and then uh, uh, tell you a cute story about Whitey, another cute story about Whitey in a minute. The way we would work, he would sit at the typewriter. And I would pace the room, and I would do all the voices, even if he talked to me about a line and I'd repeat it, he'd write it down. So we're doing a, a, a Get Smart, and I'm walking around trying to sound like Don Adams. <laughs> That's the only way I could do it. But it, the last script we did was Gomer Pyle, and I just hated walking around that room. Trying to sound like Gomer Pyle. And I hollered out, I quit. I quit. But before we, I, I quit, we were invited. You know, in, the, in that day and age, the Writers Guild used to have the best show in America about show business. You see the Tony Awards in New York, at best, are fair. The Academy Awards had been a disaster ever since Bob Hope stopped posting them 25 or 30 years ago. <laughs> they're so bad now, they're not even going to have a host. That's how awful yeah. the host was. Anyway, uh, we sat in on a meeting. When I first started as a comedian, I did everything was a one-line joke because that's what stand-ups did, Bob Hope and Jack Barr, Johnny Carson. So, And I wrote really good jokes. But I love the routines of Lenny Bruce. You know, he had an album, The Sick Humor of Lenny Bruce, showed him have the cover of the album as him having a picnic at a graveyard amongst the gravestones. I mean, he had this great, he was called The Sick Comedian, you might remember. Mm -hmm. Well, one of the routines that I wrote, I loved the routine, and I only got to perform it once, was it this unemployed Jewish carpenter who 2,000 years ago and goes into the employment office and the only job he can get is one building wooden crosses for Romans. So, <laughs> <laughs> I write this really funny routine about it. 
and the club that I broke it in at was the same club. Uh, I'm hearing the music again, John. Sorry, this is a short You're segment. Uh, we're going to take a break okay. here. I know we'll be right back after these messages with more John Barber. Shaking the world and seeing what falls. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. And welcome back. This is Donald Jeffries filling in tonight for Richard Serrett, who's taking a well-deserved break. Uh, he will be back next week with you. We're talking with John Barber. John, I I want to make sure we have enough time to, I, I think, discuss uh, your, your fantastic work with the JFK assassination. I think the audience is probably more attuned to that part of your career, um, which culminated, you know, in the, in the fantastic film, which everybody needs to go see Buy John's book, but also go out and buy his film, the American media and the second assassination of president John F. Kennedy, which is uh, for my money, the best work out there, which examines the uh, abysmal way our uh, state controlled media has behaved uh, since the very beginning in reporting the facts uh, about the assassination of president Kennedy. So can we talk a little about that? Yes, I'll get to that, but this is something you asked me how real people started. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, so I'll get to it very, very quickly uh, and wrap it all up for you, because I think even more important than the assassination, one of the really wonderful things about the book is not just the history of the media and how it's declined in the history of our culture and how it's declined in our politics have declined even worse. It's a story of somebody who survived hearing no 10 times a day for 80 years and still succeeded beyond his wildest dreams. I don't want anybody to pass up the opportunity to have their life lifted and encouraged by reading this book. I got a review that I sent to you from a very, very dear friend of mine who is very talented. His name is Jeff Arbaugh. He was this talented actor and a writer in Hollywood. And when he turned 30 years of age, he gave up and he had all this talent. He wanted to become rich and he got into business. He got rich. He's very, very rich now. He asked, he got my book back in April and he didn't read it with 720 pages and he picked it up two weeks ago. He wrote the most glowing review, and he said he'd I'd wished he'd read it 30 years ago because he would have never given it up. So now he's back on stage and writing, which is something he should have done long ago. So I encourage anybody, instead of getting a self-help book, which is useless, get a real-life book about somebody who survived. Now back to it. Barry Diller was the head of Paramount Studios. At the time, George Slaughter got an order for for um, Lappin specials. And you remember Lappin was one of the great cultural comedy hits in America, but it only lasted three years because George Slaughter, the co-creator of the show, the show was really written, created by a drunken Englishman, uh, a drunken Englishman. And uh, he he was brilliant, but George ended up owning the show. And uh, what ha- what happened is that George got de- jealous of the two guys, Rowan and Martin, who were becoming the stars when George wanted to be the star. 
So the show collapsed and George went to a psychiatrist. Anyway, NBC wanted to revive the show. George said, no host, but I'll do four specials. Now we come back to Barry Diller and um, the, the movie I was talking about, uh, The Great Gatsby. Great Gatsby, right. It, it looked beautiful, and Robert Redford was handsome, and the women were beautiful. It was Clayton's photography was absolutely brilliant, but they told the story lousy. So it was a crappy movie, but it got on the cover of Time magazine. It got on the cover of Newsweek magazine, and Barry Diller was going around saying, we've just bought a clothing company because Paramount's going to become rich richer uh, manufacturing Gatsby clothing than making movies for crying out loud. And all around town where they're nothing but Gatsby parties. Now at the time, Jeffrey, it was only $3 to get into a movie. And Barry Diller announces that what we're going to do is we're going to double the price and charge $6. It's such a great movie. And everybody agreed with him, life and time and everybody, except me. <laughs> and what my closing line of my review was the only way Barry Diller is going to get $6 for this movie if he charges three to get in and three to get out. <laughs> well, that was picked up by Time Magazine and the movie bombed and justifiably so. But I got a call from George Slaughter who was laughing. He said, hey, can I buy, you know, all this funny stuff you write in your reviews? Can I buy it? And I said, you can have it for nothing. It's public. It's out there. You can just steal it like Milton Berle. <laughs> and then I said to him, you know what, George? Oh, everything on laughing is only like eight or 12 seconds long. Why don't you let me be the critic at large there like I am here? I'll write my own stuff. You can pay me scale as a writer and pay me scale as a performer. So he hired me. So myself and the drunken Englishman, Big B. Wolf, and George Slaughter, the three of us, wrote these specials that introduced Robin Williams and a couple of other really fantastic, fantastic talents. So I knew George, and they never picked up the show because it didn't have a it didn't have a host. Anyway, when ABC turns me down and nobody else will buy this, I'm standing on Foreman Avenue in front of my house and I'm giving my career up. And I'm 46, third happiest day of my life. And I go in the house. And the phone rings. And it's Digby Wolf. And Digby says, what are you doing? I said, nothing. I just quit show business. He said, how'd you like to get back into it? I said, what do you mean? He said, I just signed a contract with Westinghouse to develop shows. And I read in the trades that you said, you were going to change the face of American television with a reality, the entertainment of reality. How would you like to come and do it here? I had been under contract to Westinghouse's Merv Griffin's replacement, and they loved the idea that I'd be working with Bigby. So I go in to meet with Bigby, and I'm sitting down on a couch. His office is across from George Slaughter's. George comes out, and he sees me. He said, what are you doing? I said, waiting for Digby. He said, why don't you come in here a minute? And I had the five scripts in my hand. So I go in there, sit down with him, and we chat. And he tells me he gets this unbelievable call for Freddie Silverman. And Freddie Silverman, do you know anything about real people, George? 
Norris says, no, I don't know. Only show people. He said, do you think you could do a show? Because he did the Judy Garland show and a bunch of other things. And he, Silverman says, can you do a show about real people? And he said, yeah. So he says to me, why don't you come here and do your show? And he puts down on a piece of paper $5,000 and hands it to me. I said, what's this? He says, this is going to be your salary as a performer. So I write back, what's my salary as a writer? He writes back $1,500. What's my royalty? So we go back and forth, but he won't give me a producer's fee because he's afraid of a lawsuit. So we get to do our first special. And it happened that easy by accident. Now, guess who he wants as his first girl host? Mm. Susan Anton. Do you remember Susan <laughs> Anton? Sure, sure. Uh, tell the audience who Susan Anton was. Well, very, very uh, model. I, I believe she did a little acting. She was more notable, very tall, uh, you know, striking woman. I believe she was mostly noted as one, of the, maybe one of the first supermodels. No, she well, she did that also, but she yeah. was a fantastic singer, and she was oh, the lover of the guy that started in Arthur, that little English actor. Oh, Dudley Moore, yeah, yeah. Sure. They, they they were a couple, and she's a foot and a half taller than Dudley, uh, than Dudley. and it's Dudley only lived size. the best. Yeah. Huh? twice his size, he was very short. Yeah, so I said to George, you can't hire Susan Anton. He said, why not? I said, people are going to look at her and say, what does she see in nothing but unknowns, okay? And and because the stars of the show are going to be the stories that we're going to tell. And the other host that he wanted to be close with me was David Steinberg. David Steinberg is a comic, or was a comic, and everything was political. And I said, you can't even have David. But he said, no, we wanted David. And David came in and turned down the show because there was no stars. Anyway, I go home. And I say to my wife, I think I had my first argument with George Slaughter over the cast. And my son is 10 years of age. And he said, Dad, have you ever seen Sarah Purcell? And I said, who's Sarah Purcell? <laughs> well, she co-hosts with, uh, on the morning show on the ABC with uh, Regis Philbin. Why don't you take a look at her in the morning? So I get up in the morning and I look at Sarah. And God, she's adorable. She'd been a weather girl in San Diego. And she just was so relaxed on camera. And she was appealing and attractive and articulate. So I call her and I set up a meeting. So she comes the next day to Slaughter's office. Slaughter doesn't talk to her five minutes and hires her. And then Slaughter calls my house and invites Christopher to come the following day to see him. So, of course, he's only 10. So his mother, Sarita, has to take him. So Sarita takes Christopher into the office to meet George. And guess what George has? George knows that my son loves Superman. That that's what he wore every Halloween and has this huge poster signed by the creator Siegel of Superman and gives it oh. to my son. That's what's hanging behind me in my office. When you call me in my office and see me on camera 
Yeah. And that's why I always wear the Superman shirt. That's <laughs> that. That's where it started. Oh, that's become your new signature. So, so if you get real people, so now how 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 do you go from that into the world of the JFK assassination? Because I think the audience would probably be most interested in that. Okay, real people got their first special. Oh, and there's the music. Oh, well, hang on that thought, and we'll we'll bring up the JFK assassination right after these messages. We'll be right back. Okay. Don't be afraid of the dark. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To talk to Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And welcome back to The Conspiracy Show. This is Donald Jeffries, your guest host tonight. Um, so, John Barber, we're talking to show business veteran John Barber. So, let's talk a little about the JFK assassination, how you came uh, into that world. And that's pretty much how we met in a cyber sense because of the mutual interest in the JFK assassination. Again, Jeffrey, that was all an, ap- uh, an accident. Mm-hmm. And I would say a happy accident, even though it cost me two of the most successful shows in the history of television. And it didn't work out so well either for Jim Garrison, but it will work out for history. So that's uh, because of the films. But uh, it, uh, it, I was in 1979. I wasn't interested in Garrison or the assassination. And I'd only talked to Jim Garrison three times. And the first time was to book him in 1970. I became the host of the ABC talk show, morning show in Los Angeles, a live 90-minute show. And that was a year after he had lost the Clay Shaw trial. He arrested Clay Shaw, you know, in 1967 and immediately announced on camera and on the news, we've solved the crime. It was committed by the Central Intelligence Agency, and we will prove it in court. And we will name names and track them. I mean, he, he had solved it. Now, everybody jumped all over him. The media poo-pooed him, called him a nut and a whack job in the government. And they did that for two years. Now, I didn't pay any attention to it. I believed, you know, the, the government, when they say Oswald did it, why would the government lie about something like that, you know? And it was a country that I'd been deported from twice, and I was trying to get into legally. So I didn't want to question the government about anything like that, but I get this show, and I uh, and we have the number one show in L.A. We're bumping heads with the Today Show. We put people on like Muhammad Ali. Everybody wants him in jail because he won't go to Vietnam and kill yellow people. He said because white people are his enemy. We had uh, Hanoi Jane Fonda on the show and taught her to speak properly when she was trying to sell peace to the world. And Cesar Chavez called the most popular labor leader in the world called to be on our show. That's how strong the show was because he was called to be a character witness in a crime that resulted in the murder of Ruben Salazar, who was uh, a Chicano columnist, a brilliant columnist for the LA Times. So in any event, we had this, and I won my first Emmy. 
And I'm in a bookstore. It's called Edmund's Bookstore on Hollywood Boulevard. And there's a book called Heritage of Stone. And I look at the author, Jim Garrison. Is this the same guy? So I pick it up just to leap through it. I stood there for four hours and read the book. I couldn't put it down. I mean, I learned things that I didn't, I'd never heard of. I mean, he had to take time life to the Supreme Court to get the Supreme Court to order time life to give him the Zabruder film to show the jury. And then there's a only forensic pathologist, supposedly, in the autopsy room here, Fink, who testifies that they're not even allowed to perform the autopsy. They're not even allowed to look at photographs. That's why, or x-rays, that's why, in the Ward report, it's just one, two cartoon drawings of a bullet going through the back of John Kennedy's head. I mean, it looks like Mad Magazine put it together, but I wasn't aware of it at the time. But I thought, my God, what a story. And I'm a storyteller. It's not, and I never considered myself having talent as a writer or performer or any of that, even though I was successful at it. I was a storyteller. When I wrote jokes, I thought I was telling a story. When I had a guest, I tried to get a guest who had a story to tell. Who had a greater story than Jim Garrison about the murder of the president of the United States? So in the morning, I first thing, I knew the time difference. I call New Orleans and I get the uh, district attorney's office and a bass baritone voice answers, beautiful voice, that's low. I said, can I speak to Mr. Garrison, please? And he said, speaking. This is Mr. Garrison. And I got all excited. Oh, Mr. Garrison, my name's John Barber. I just finished reading Heritage of Stone. And Jeffrey, he laughed out loud. He said, oh, you must be the other one because I only sold two copies. Which is not true. It <laughs> yeah. was a bestseller. But in any event, I, thought I got the number one show in, in the country for a morning show. I, the, uh, Nicholas Johnson, the FCC commissioner, liked it so much. Not only did he send a letter to Leonard Goldenson, president of ABC, he asked to come on the show. So I would love to have you on to talk about your uh, your book and your case. And he said, John, you'll never get away with it. And I told him about the ratings and all the rest of it. And I finally talked him into it. He relaxed, even though he said I'd never get away with it. And he reminded me it was 1970, and it was six years after the publication of the Warren Report. And he says to me, you know, 80% of all the people don't believe, according to the Harris polls, that Oswald did it or did it alone. And I said, well, if everybody knows that, why isn't something happening? And he said, well, you didn't see the second question in the, in the poll. The second question is, would you like to see a deeper investigation involving an investigation of the FBI and the CIA? And he said only 23% said yes. What does that say? I hate to do it again, John. That was our short segment. So we'll be right right back, and you'll have to pick up the story again. You're going to be an expert at this by the time the show's over. We'll be right back into these messages. When you look at the sky, ever wonder if someone's looking back? This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. 
in, and welcome back to the show. This is Donald Jeffries filling in for Richard Serrett. Uh, John, go ahead, please. I'm sorry to interrupt you again if you can finish that story. Oh, uh, that's hard. Listen, if you didn't have the commercials, you wouldn't be on the air. doesn't bother <laughs> me at all. But in any event, when he told me about that, and he said, what does that say about us that only 23% want a real investigation? And without missing a beat, I said, Mr. Garrison, I know what it says to me. I know what my mother and father did in the rumble seat of the car or on the pool table or in the bedroom or at the back alley or where they ever to conceive me. But don't ever tell me my mother's not a virgin. Well, he howled. And he said, can I quote you? Because it sounds like one of my favorite quotes from Mark Twain. And I said, what's that? Mark Twain said, it's easier to fool people than to convince them that they have been fooled. And, John, we have been fooled since November 22nd, 1963. So I book him and I'm fired. And he's canceled. But I never thought that it had anything to do with my – it was – I know it was reminiscent of what happened to me in Chicago, but I didn't connect the two. Okay, so my, the job that I get after after that is as a critic um, because by that time I was the – uh, film critic for 10 years for Los Angeles Magazine. And so I got a job at uh, uh, Channel 11, and then and Tom Brokaw saw me and brought me to NBC, and I was at N- NBC for five years. But I'm just a storyteller, and I talked to Garrison Lee twice after that because I love talking to him on the phone. I've only met three geniuses in my life. My son is one, Buckminster Fuller, the scientist, is the other, and Jim Garrison. And I just love listening to him. It is beautiful, Orson Welles' voice. And so during uh, um, Vietnam, uh, I called him so that we could talk about the war. And then when Frank Sinatra, uh, Sinatra's private writer for about four years, and when he took over the Tonight Show one night. He asked me to come on and do a stand-up. And if you go, if you can just Google YouTube, John Barber and the Tonight Show with Sinatra, you'll see the whole stand-up. And there's a line in the stand-up when I mentioned Watergate. And I said, Watergate is something that may have put us on the brink of democracy. Well, the audience cheered and applauded. And that was back then, for crying out loud. And Garrison phoned me and asked me if I... He could steal some of my material again. And I said, yes. So, but it was just a phone call until Real People became the number one monster show in the country. And what happens is that in television, those people who own the shows, like George Slaughter owned Real People, but he had nothing to do with it becoming number one. As a matter of fact, he started to destroy it when he hired a 12-year-old kid, Peter Billingsley, to host the show, co-host the show. And I, <laughs> we, uh, we almost got into a fist fight. I said, you can't have a 12-year-old kid telling real people's stories. But the reason he signed them, do you remember Alan Rodney Rippey? Yes, yes. Uh-huh. Well, tell the audience who he is. Well, he was, he was a cute little black kid that was in a lot of uh, commercials, I believe, back then. <laughs> That's right, and he was in. He was also in a sitcom. So Slaughter put Peter, uh, 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 the guy I just mentioned. Uh, I'm just, I'm 
I want to forget him because it's such a bad experience. And it, it put him, put him, Billingsy, on the show because he thought he was going to have to wipe Rodney Allen Rippey and get a contract from NBC. Instead, after two years, that started to lead to the decline of the show. But in, in any event, what happened is Freddie Silverman, which is the Peter Pin- Principal incognite, calls Slaughter, and he wants to know if he can do a ripoff of Network. Remember Network with Mad as Hell, I'm not going to take it sure. anymore with Peter <laughs> Finch. And, and so they do a thing called Speak Up America. And George asked me to help him with them. And I said, no, I'm trying to save real people, which you're trying to destroy, for God's sake. I'm working 20 hours a day writing and editing all this stuff. So in any event, his show is dying, the one there. And then I read on the page 13 of the L.A. Times that the House Select Committee had concluded, and they're reporting something in the past, had concluded that a conspiracy existed in the murder of Martin Luther King and John Kennedy because they found the H.B. McLean's dicta belt. He was a motorcycle officer at Dealey Plaza who had left his uh, recording device on on his waist, the dicta belt, and it recorded more than four gunshots. So even though G. Robert Blakey, the CIA hack, who went around trying to blame the mafia, and wrote uh, and, and wrote a thank you to the CIA at the opening of his book about the plot to kill Kennedy. I mean, it's just despicable. But in any event, he had to conclude there was a conspiracy, and it rests as a cold case at the Robert Kennedy Justice Department. What a name for the Justice Department. <laughs> Somebody else yeah. who will not receive justice in this country, along with Martin Luther King and Malcolm X and John F. Kennedy. So anyway, I pick up the phone immediately and I call Mr. Garrison. And he's thrilled to hear from me. And I say, Mr. Garrison, don't you feel vindicated? And he chuckled again. And he had this great sardonic sense of humor. And he was always singing Cole Porter or Rogers and Hammerstein or quoting Shakespeare. He loved Shakespeare, and I, he and I had that in common. But in any event, he says to me, he said, John, I feel like a blind man who's gotten a small trophy in a very dark room, only I know I got it. And he said, nobody will ever see the files that I sent to the... I, I asked him, I said, well, didn't they call you to testify? He said, I turned them down. And I said, why? I said, well, listen, they tore up all my subpoenas to Helms and everybody else. So I tore up theirs. And they will never see. They will. They might release some CIA files, but they'll never release my files. And to this day, that's music again. Yeah, no, the music, we have a couple minutes, but we let, let's just talk in the maybe two minutes we have left. Whatever you want to promote, talk about your film, talk about your book, your tour of Canada, whatever you want to talk about. Okay, my suggestion is, can somebody turn that music down while I say this? Uh, I, don't, I think it's automatic. I, I, don't, I can't control it. So. <laughs> okay, anyway, people should go to www.johnbarbersworld.com. They can see the first Garrison Tapes for Nothing. 
It's an award-winning film. It is just absolutely spectacular. Also, you can go, you can see me with Sinatra, you can see me on the roads with Red Fox, who became my mentor. You can go to um, the uh, the link that will take you to the book, uh, Your Mother's Not a Virgin, The Bumpy Life and Times of the Canadian Dropout Who Changed the Face of American Television. And I assure you, it is the best book ever written about anyone who was ever in show business. Also, there is a link to the definitive documentary about the murder of John Kennedy solved by Jim Garrison and the birth and purpose of fake news. It's on Amazon for only $2, and it's a runaway monster hit. It's called The American Media and the Second Assassination of President John F. Kennedy. Now, I've read every book on the assassination. Twelve of them are totally brilliant. But this movie is better than all of them put together because it's only one-tenth of the cost. It takes you a week or two to read a book. only takes you two hours to see this film. And anyway, I want to thank you very, very much, Jeffrey, for having me on the show. I just love, love to talk to you. Well, we, I love, love to, we, we talk all the time and it's, it's always a pleasure. And, uh, at the time I knew the time would go fast and, and, and it certainly always does. And I want to thank, uh, Richard Surratt for letting me co-host or guest host. And I, I, I love doing this and I admire his work very much. And obviously I admire John Barber very much. Go out and buy his book, see his films. Uh, he's a national treasure and, uh, Richard Surratt. Again, thank you very much for having me here, and uh, I hope everyone enjoyed the show. And Richard will be back with you uh, the same time next week. And I think that's it. I don't hear the music, but I think we're coming up on a hard break here. So, John Barber, again, thank you very much for being here with you, and we'll talk soon. Thank you. Thank you. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air and The Garden Show.